For years, I just dreaded going to the dentist. But at Advanced Dentistry, I don't have to. First and foremost, they want you to feel comfortable when you walk in, like, you'll feel it. Whereas in the past, I might have gone into the dentist and thinking, I might feel some pain at some point. But with IV sedation, it can be something that you don't dread. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, you're not alone. Visit NoFearDentist.com to learn how IV sedation can change your life. Here we go. Let's do this. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. It's an old joke, but when a man argues against two beautiful ladies like this, they're going to have the last word. She spoke, not elegantly, but with unmistakable clarity. She said, I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. Welcome to Strict Scrutiny, a Supreme Court podcast so fierce it's fatal in fact. I'm Jamie Santos. And I'm Leah Littman. And we are your hosts for today's episode. How you doing, Leah? I'm doing pretty well. Obviously, Melissa couldn't be here since she's too busy being a Supreme Court shortlister. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what Kate's excuse is, though. Do you think Melissa would hire me as her law clerk? I mean, I've already put it in an application, so I kind of hope so. She could have a pretty cool first uh, first term in Chambers. All right. Well, I think we should just jump right in because we have a whole bunch of cool stuff. We have a great episode today, jam-packed with updates about the court's October sitting. Uh, And so first, we're going to recap some arguments the court heard over the last three weeks. But you might notice that we're not covering the Title VII cases because there's a whole separate episode for that because they, they the cases are so important, they deserve their own episode. Uh, And then we're also, at the end, going to talk about a couple of cert grants that were just granted. And I'm guessing that by the time this episode airs, there might be a couple other cert grants, so we'll just have to tweet about those. Exactly. All right, Leah, so let's jump in. What is our first case? So the first case is Ramos versus Louisiana. Um, And this case involves the question about whether the Sixth Amendment right to a unanimous jury, assuming such a right exists, which we'll get to in a second, is incorporated against the states. So basically, by way of background, the Sixth Amendment says that criminal defendants have the right to a trial by jury. Um, And uh, a couple, I think in the mid-20th century, the Supreme Court held that that Sixth Amendment requirement also requires unanimity in jury verdicts. You can't have 10 twos and get convicted um, of a crime. You have to have a unanimous jury verdict. Uh, But they only held that uh, as to federal cases brought by the federal government. Um, And then in 1972, the the court decided this case called Apodaca versus Oregon. And I love the name of that case. And the justices just kept saying it all day. And I loved it. Um, But basically, Apodaca looked at whether the the unanimity requirement applies to the states uh, through the 14th Amendment. Um, And that's, as you mentioned, that's something called incorporation. Uh, So Apodaca was kind of weird. What happened in it, Leah? Yeah. So the case was really reminiscent of a case that the Supreme Court heard recently, Tim's versus Indiana last term, which was also a question about incorporation. And Tim's involved the question about whether the prohibition on excessive fines was incorporated against the states. Um, And the reason why it was reminiscent of Tim's is because the state 
and the justices seemed to understand that it was a pretty uphill battle at this point to argue that a right that applies to the federal government does not apply equally or isn't incorporated against the state. So what the state ended up doing was instead of arguing that whatever the Sixth Amendment right that exists isn't incorporated against the states, the state wanted to argue about what the Sixth Amendment right to a jury trial actually includes and whether it includes a right to a unanimous jury. But the thing that made this case different from Tim's uh, is that there was a prior case that already held that it's not incorporated, right? Right, exactly. Whereas in Tim's, the Supreme Court had never previously addressed whether the prohibition on excessive fines was incorporated against the states. Here, the Supreme Court had specifically held that whatever the Sixth Amendment right to a jury trial with respect to unanimity is, that is not incorporated against the states. Right. And so that was the Apodaca case. And it was kind of a weird one because there was no majority opinion. There was no majority that actually uh, uh, would sign on to an opinion saying there is a Sixth Amendment right to a unanimous jury and it's incorporated instead you had four justices who, who said that it implies to this uh, applies to the states through incorporation four justices who said we would overturn our prior holding that there is a unanimous um, uh, guarantee at all and then one justice alone who said you know if there is this uh, requirement it definitely doesn't apply to the states and so that one justice's opinion is what rules the day Yeah, and so that unique split among the justices, this 4-1-4 vote breakdown, is related to the difference between this case, Ramos, and the Supreme Court's previous decision in Tim's, and specifically whether it mattered that there is that earlier Supreme Court decision that had said, no, the right to unanimous jury doesn't apply to the states. In order to establish like why the st- state was making these alternative arguments on the merits, um, it's useful to understand what happened in Tim's and specifically how not receptive the justices were to the argument that a right that applies to the federal government does not apply equally and isn't incorporated against the state. So we're going to play two clips from Tim's, one from Justice Gorsuch and one from Justice Kavanaugh, both expressing considerable skepticism um, to the state's argument that a right that applies to the federal government doesn't apply to the states. But whatever the excessive fine clause guarantees, we can argue again about its scope and in REM and in personam, but whatever it in fact is, it applies against the states. Most, most of these incorporation cases took place in like the 1940s. And here we are in 2018, still litigating incorporation of the Bill of Rights. Really? Come on, General. Well, for the clause, why do you have to take into account all of the history to pick up on Justice Gorsuch's question. Isn't it just too late in the day to argue that any of the Bill of Rights uh, is not incorporated? But aren't, but aren't all, the, all of the Bill of Rights at this point in our conception of what they stand for, the history of each of them uh, incorporated? Leah, I have to say that for someone who wrote a whole book about civility, that come on, general, was not maybe the most civil way to question someone during an argument. It is utterly shocking to me that Justice Gorsuch does not live up to his grandiose calls for civility. Um, Yeah, and especially since it was only a few years after Heller where this incorporation issue came uh, up in the Second Amendment context. So it's not like it's really that absurd of an argument. Well, it's also not absurd because we don't have a doctrine of total incorporation. That is the reason why some provisions apply to the states is not because the 14th Amendment applies 
every single Bill of Rights provision to the states. It instead only applies those Bill of Rights provisions to the states that are implicit in the concept of order liberty and fundamental to the Anglo-American you know, conception of order justice. And so that is a doctrine of selective incorporation, not total incorporation. So it's simply not the case that every single Bill of Rights oppression automatically applies to the states. Rather, you have to go through this freestanding legal test to determine whether a Bill of Rights provision applies to the states. Right. Okay. So here we've got you know, so we have this Tim's background where we know that two of the conservative justices who you really, really, really want to get to win basically don't believe in selective incorporation anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the other hand, you've got a prior case from 19, I think, 48 um, already holding in the way you want to come out. So what do you do? Do you argue stare decisis? Do you argue something else? Um, and what did the state do here? So the state wanted to argue that something else that you were alluding to, specifically that the Sixth Amendment doesn't actually require unanimity. Just like, like ever literally at all, even in right, federal cases. period. Even against federal cases um, and, you know, not against the states either. And the justices didn't seem to like that argument selection. Rather, they wanted the state to argue that, no, assuming or even if the Sixth Amendment does include this requirement of unanimity, it doesn't apply to the states, either because of the doctrine of selective incorporation or because you, Supreme Court, have already decided this issue. So let's play an argument clip from Justice Kavanaugh asking the um, advocate representing Louisiana why she was not arguing against incorporation. For the sake of argument, assume that I think the Sixth Amendment requires a unanimous jury, just for the sake of argument. What are your best arguments, then, for why the uh, right is not incorporated, and relatedly, your best arguments for not overruling uh, Apodaca, which uh, is read, they, the opposing counsel says, to have allowed the states to do that. Justice Kavanaugh, they are conceitedly not very good. I mean, I, I think that based on Tim's, that we recognize that this court, at least at this point in time, has taken a view of incorporation that says that there's no daylight. So if you find that unanimity is required, I find myself in a far more difficult position. You know, she doesn't seem to think that she has a great argument if the Supreme Court thinks that the Sixth Amendment does require unanimity. But it wasn't just Justice Kavanaugh who wanted to make um, her, her to make this argument. It was also Justice Kagan who was really, I think, fixated on this difference we were alluding to earlier between this case and Tim's, which is you have a prior Supreme Court decision that is nominally entitled to the kind of respect that all Supreme Court decisions are um, that has already resolved this issue. So why aren't you relying on the doctrine of da-da-da-da, stare decisis? Okay, so here's what Justice Kagan said. More difficult position. Well, yes and no. Yes and no, General Merrill, because uh, uh, you have this stare decisis, except you're giving it away, and I don't know what to make of that. Because I would think that what you would do is to say something like, uh, this is an outlier in our incorporation doctrine. There's no question that it is, but it's been an outlier for 50 years. It's been completely administrable. It's been completely clear. States have had every right to rely on this for 50 years. It doesn't matter whether it was wrong because overruling something requires more than just that the decision be wrong. It's been there. States have relied on it. There's no reason to change it. The end. Stare decisis. But you're telling me that Justice Powell's opinion isn't entitled to precedential force, isn't entitled to stare decisis effect. So I don't know what to do with that argument anymore. 
Okay, so I, I have to say I found the state strategy a bit confounding. I feel like, you know, you're the state in a criminal case in a court where the conservatives have not been super criminal defendant friendly, and the liberals have spent the last year hammering the importance of stare decisis, and you're completely abandoning an absolutely solid, you know, 70-year or 50-year, whatever, stare decisis argument. And I felt a little bit like I was in the twilight zone listening to the argument and hearing Justice Kagan's frustration about how things were going. Um, and then even later, Justice Alito said something like, you know, this uh, non-incorporation, that's not a crazy argument. Like, well, you know, why don't you give it a try? And it was it was so, so strange to me. Yeah. So I want to uh, come back to another point that Justice Alito raised, which is, as you were suggesting earlier, um, you know, you are arguing before a court in which not all of the conservative justices are super receptive to arguments on behalf of criminal defendants, including Justice Alito. And so Justice Alito is um, inviting the Solicitor General to make an argument because obviously he's perhaps not particularly inclined to rule for the criminal defendant. And so he does so essentially by trolling the progressive justices on the ground that they had previously lectured him and other justices about how important stare decisis is. And so naturally, that meant stare decisis has to mean you can't rule for a criminal defendant. So why don't we just play that clip here? You are asking us to overrule Apodaca. So we do have to think about stare decisis. And last term, the majority was lectured pretty sternly in a couple of dissents about the importance of stare decisis and about the impropriety of overruling established rules. I'm thinking about the dissent in Franchise Tax Board and the dissent in Nick versus Township of Scott. And a very important consideration uh, in considering stare decisis is reliance. So it would be helpful to me if you could compare the reliance that's at issue here. Louisiana and Oregon have tried thousands of cases. Uh, in reliance on Apodaca, the Court said this was okay. We've never, we've never suggested that it wasn't. We've denied cert in lots of cases. So can you compare the reliance here with the reliance in Franchise Tax Board and in NIC. So, Leo, when I first listened to this, I first felt really annoyed at Justice Alito, given his opinion in Janus, um, <laughs> which I feel like I'm still sore over. But, you know, I'm going to give this grade A trolling. This is this is pretty decent. Oh, yeah. You have to give it to Justice Alito. Um, you know, I do not often agree with him, but he asks really good questions. And in particular, he just has this kind of like self-satisfied, like I can stick it to you thing about him. And he's clearly doing that here. Um, and so there's another justice who uh, is not so keen on stare decisis, right? Oh, yeah. Um, well, actually, perhaps several of them. But here, I think you were referring to Justice Gorsuch, um, who, you know, in his opinion last term in Gamble had already kind of raised some questions about stare decisis in addition to his separate writing in Kaiser. So here at the argument in Ramos, he basically offers up a reason why perhaps stare decisis shouldn't be that significant of a factor here. Well, on your reliance interests, um, you say we should worry about the 32,000 uh, people imprisoned. Um, one might wonder whether we should worry about their interests under the Sixth Amendment as well. And then I, I can't help but wonder, well, should we forever ensconce an incorrect view 
of the United States Constitution for perpetuity for all states and all people, denying them a right that we believe was originally given to them because of 32,000 criminal convictions in Louisiana. So basically saying if there is a violation of constitutional rights, then even the potential of letting 32,000 people out of prison is not as much of a concern to me as as the rights itself, which I actually – um, I actually thought, you know, wait a minute, I thought you were really worried about social upheaval, uh, but that I think applies only to um, the Title VII context. Uh, though, to be fair, there is a difference between constitutional rights and statutory rights where Congress can change the statute. And as he talked about, you know, are we enshrining forever in the Constitution um, this principle just because of stare decisis? Yeah, well, so I think that on this particular question here about why perhaps the state's interest in reliance might be less weighty, um, another reason to think that maybe he's onto something is that there are other doctrines besides stare decisis that protect the state's reliance interest in criminal cases, um, particularly all of the procedural rules that prevent courts from granting relief to defendants who were convicted and sentenced a long time ago under then controlling precedent, doctrines like retroactivity, which we'll talk about later, um, or doctrines like procedural default. And so there are already doctrines that kind of um, protect the state's reliance interests in the finality and criminal convictions, um, such that perhaps stare decisis uh, the reliance interests here, at least the state's reliance interests on its prior criminal convictions and sentences, is perhaps not as significant as reliance interests elsewhere. Yeah, and an- another kind of two things on the- that reliance point is, you know, that first, almost every state has the unanimous jury requirement, right? Is it just yes. Louisiana or maybe just Louisiana? It's Louisiana. Oregon. Okay, Oregon and Louisiana. So it's not, you know, so creating a 50-state rule based on something, reliance interests of two states seems sketchy. And maybe even more so because here, Louisiana has already changed the law. Exactly. In 2018, they changed the law and created a unanimous jury requirement. So it's not like there's reliance interests even going forward. Yeah. So um, I think that some of the justices' fixations on stare decisis was, as we've alluded to earlier when we've talked about stare decisis, really done with an eye toward a concern about what the Supreme Court was going to do about other precedents. That All is, roads perhaps- lead to Roe. <laughs> well, arguably here, the Rhodes didn't lead to Roe, although Roe did come up at the oral argument when Justice Breyer asked um, the advocate representing Louisiana about the stare decisis interest. So why don't we play that clip here? If I believe, one, contrary to what you say, I be- assume it, I believe that, in fact, uh, the uh, federal right uh, in the Constitution <laughs> does include unanimity in the Sixth Amendment. Then, two, I think that thereafter uh, it was fairly clear in the law that uh, same uh, the federal rules apply to states if we incorporate. But you do have a point if you say there are anomalies in the law, and perhaps we should leave the anomaly alone. And that's where you bring in your reason, the reason being that 32,000 people, and so, et cetera. Okay, I got that structure. Is there any other instance you can think of where, despite a contradiction, which you're allowing under my assumptions to remain, a legal contradiction, the court says, okay, because let sleeping dogs lie. Otherwise, we get serious harm. Just a footnote. That's not taken care of by Teague and the other doctrines your adversary talked about. 
Your Honor, I think that one of the, the, the significant lines of jurisprudence that comes to my mind is Roe. I mean, I, I, you know, hesitate to bring that into this, but I, I do think that's an area. And I think that any time you have a non-textual right that, that the court has relied on, discussed, related to in passing, I mean, or, or quoted in passing over time and changed incorporation doctrine, that it is that much more important to get the text and the history right. So that was a little awkward. Um, yes. <laughs> but uh, I actually think that the precedent that um, some of the justices who were invoking stare decisis had in mind was not Roe, but perhaps another precedent that people might be concerned could be overruled in the near future. And that is Baki versus University of California. What was and the Baki? Re- Baki is the decision that um, suggested some permissible rationales for race-conscious remedies in the context of school admission. So Baki addressed the University of California Medical School's admissions policy, which at the time reserved a certain number of slots for underrepresented minorities. And the breakdown in that decision was like the breakdown in Apodaca, 414. And the one justice, the one justice in the middle, was like an Apodaca, Justice Powell. And what Justice Powell said is you can't use race-conscious remedies to remedy past discrimination um, unless they're tied to remedying specific constitutional violations. Um, Instead, you can only use them for purposes of enhancing diversity. And so I think the justices who were invoking stare decisis were concerned when the advocates were suggesting Apodaca was perhaps – entitled to less precedential respect and less precedential weight because it was a 414 breakdown. Because if that's right, then that suggests it should be easier to overrule Baki and race-conscious admissions and race-conscious remedies as well. And with so the Harvard let- case coming up the pipeline, that is very much at the, the front of the mind of probably some of the justices. Exactly. So let's play um, a clip from Justice Kagan, who I think this was definitely on her mind. You started off, uh, and then I told you to stop, but I thought I'd give you an opportunity to do it again. I mean, what are we to make of this 414 uh, reasoning of, of, of Apodaca? And in, in what do you think the rule should be about stare decisis going forward? Do you need a majority? Do you just need a controlling rule? What's What's the right way to think about that? So there's one other aspect of this argument that was really interesting to me, and that was Justice Kavanaugh uh, and how – because we know when we're talking about jury issues, um, he has some thoughts on juries and he's written about juries and he was in the majority. He wrote Flowers. Didn't he write Flowers? Or was he just the majority? No, he wrote Flowers versus Mississippi, which is a decision from last term that overturned the murder conviction of Curtis Flowers on the ground that the prosecutor had impermissibly removed jurors on the basis of race. And so what did – did he uh, come up in this argument? Yeah. So in Ramos, he wanted to know about the possible reasons why Louisiana had allowed for non-unanimous juries, because there has been a considerable amount of historical work and scholarship indicating that one reason why Louisiana wanted to allow for non-unanimous juries was to eliminate the prospect that if there were black jurors on the jury, they would vote not to convict um, a black defendant. And so the state's rationale for allowing non-unanimous juries was to prevent that situation and therefore make it easier to convict black defendants. And so Justice Kavanaugh asked, 
about whether that was the rationale for the state's rule as it previously existed, and if so, whether that was a sufficient ground to invalidate it on equal protection grounds. Yeah, it's interesting because he said basically, you know, is stare decisis uh, less strong, less powerful in the context of a rule that has racist underpinnings? Um, which is an interesting doctrinally, that's a, a kind of interesting kind of factor. Um, it also does, though, make me wonder if we're going to keep sticking these new factors into whether stare decisis applies, then it's, you know, kind of limitless. Yeah. So I think that his suggestion there really gets at two things that have featured in the stare decisis debates. First is any theory of stare decisis presumably has to be able to explain why it's nonetheless permissible to overturn decisions like Korematsu or Plessy versus Ferguson, which upheld separate but equal, or Dred Scott versus Sanford, um, which held that African-Americans weren't citizens of the United States. And so given that you have to be able to overturn those decisions, there has to be a theory of decisis that explains why that is so. On the other hand, his idea that perhaps decisions with racist underpinnings are entitled to less respect feeds into Justice Thomas's theory of stare decisis, which is stare decisis isn't appropriate for decisions that are demonstrably or egregiously erroneous, um, because you might think decisions with racist underpinnings fall into that category. Yeah. it's. I feel like this is one of the straight... We've seen um, criminal cases with Justice Kavanaugh kind of... Um, voting in favor of the criminal defendant and with Justice Gorsuch, but not in the same opinion, I don't think yet. And I feel like we could get that here between Justice Gorsuch's kind of lack of fidelity to stare decisis and Justice Kavanaugh's concern for, you know, race in, in juries could be interesting. Yeah, um, that might be right. You know, Tim's is a, you know, interesting exception because like civil forfeiture isn't technically criminal, but, you know, some people kind of view it as adjacent to the criminal process, at least. Um, I did want to note um, one bit about when Justice Kavanaugh brought up this possibility of um, a reasoning that might lead the court not to adhere to um, Apodaca is that, of course, the justice who was immediately skeptical about this theory was Wokelito, <laughs> who, you know, immediately threw out this hypothetical of, well, if that's the reason for not adhering to Apodaca, would that mean Louisiana's rule requiring non-unanimous juries would be constitutional if Louisiana just reenacted it for other reasons? Oh, my God. It's like the census case, Leah. Well, not only that, I, I, a part of me feels like, yes, Justice Alito, that is how equal protection doctrine works, right? Like policies are unlawful when they are enacted for racially discriminatory reasons, not merely because they have racially discriminatory effects. And if you would like to revisit Washington versus Davis, give me a call. <laughs> I, also, I mean, it, it's a particularly odd hypothetical here where we know that Louisiana has enacted a new jury requirement and it does not require non-unanimous verdicts. Yes. So I think it was definitely the case that Louisiana struggled a little bit in this argument in order to offer up a rationale that perhaps five justices found persuasive as to why non-unanimity might be permissible. Um, you know, perhaps had the solicitor general participate in this argument, they could have proffered up some version of it is necessary to allow Louisiana to use non-unanimous juries in order to enforce the Voting Rights Act. But given <laughs> that they didn't participate, that one wasn't on the table. <laughs> so let's move on to the next case. Yes. The next case is PROMESA. So it's a case that is about the Puerto Rico Oversight, Management, and Economic Stability Act PROMESA, which I'm pretty sure was decided on as a name first, and then they filled in what the word should be that fill in PROMESA. 
Um, so it's called Financial Oversight and Management Board for Puerto Rico versus Aurelius Investment. And what's it about, Leah? So this case is about the constitutionality of the act you just mentioned, um, and it's an act that was designed to remedy Puerto Rico's serious financial distress. Um, so Puerto Rico was having massive financial problems, and Congress set up a board under PROMESA um, to oversee how Puerto Rico would handle bankruptcy. And the board is comprised of several members, one of whom is selected by the president, and the remainder are chosen from a list compiled by members of Congress. And so none of the members of the board went through presidential appointment and Senate confirmation. And so the appointments clause is what requires presidential appointment and Senate confirmation, but only for officers of the United States. Is that right? Yes. So uh, presidential appointment and Senate confirmation is required for so-called principal officers. Inferior officers, their appointment can be vested in the heads of departments um, or, you know, judicial branch. Um, uh, but if you are an officer of the United States, you either have to go through presidential appointment and Senate confirmation um, or have your appointment um, vested somewhere else consistent with the appointments clause. Here, I don't think that there's really any question of assuming they are officers of the United States. They would be principal officers. Um, so the question uh, was just basically, is is the are the members of the board federal officers, officers of the United States, or are they were they appointed pursuant to some other provision? And what other provision might that have been? Yes. So the other possibility is that the officers are essentially territorial officers who are, are appointed consistent with Congress's powers to regulate the territories under Article Four of the Constitution. So basically. If they were principal officers and they're exercising the power of the federal government, uh, then they're probably out of luck because it would have to go through the appointments clause and we know that they did not go through Senate confirmation. Exactly. But if they were um, – if they are not exercising the power of the federal government, if they're exercising what seems – what the parties seem to agree is local power, then they're probably fine because Congress can do that through its Article Four powers. Yes, exactly. And then there's also a question of like, let's assume you answer that question um, as they are exercising federal power um, and they are federal officers. Then there's a question about what the remedy is and specifically whether Congress can cure the remedy by just running through these officers through the appointments process or whether instead you have to redo every single decision that the officers made once they have been appointed through a valid process. And we've seen that in the context, I think, of the NLRB, where folks were not properly appointed. And then there's a question of, are those prior decisions valid or are they nullified? Here, it's a little more complicated because, you know, the what the board has been doing is basically, a you know, um, they're involved in a hundred different adversarial disputes, hundreds of millions of dollars of claims. Um, and it's kind of it kind of feels like the bell that can't be unrung. And for me, listening or uh, listening to the argument, that was kind of the overarching thing for me. Like it, it seemed to me like there's a, a bunch of justices that kind of feel like, listen, we we can't undo this. So we have to right. get we kind of start with the end. We, we know the conclusion. <laughs> yeah. It just seems like it would be impossible otherwise. Um, but uh, but it made for a very interesting argument. Um Okay, so we kind of talked about this kind of local versus federal issue. And so a lot of the argument focused on whether the board's powers were local or whether they were national. Um, mm -hmm. And it seems in some ways like that might be a close call, right? Because when Congress is enacting PROMESA, it's doing so because it's concerned about this massive financial crisis that will affect everyone. And lots of the creditors 
are United States citizen citizens on the mainland. So this affects everyone nationwide. Um, but on the other hand, the board was vested with this task of of just acting in Puerto Rico's best interest, um, acting on behalf of Puerto Rico in the bankruptcy proceedings and things like that. Yeah, so I think the parties kind of disagree about what the relevant factors are as far as how you determine whether um, the board was created as a federal office versus a local office. So one of the factors is, as you were alluding to, like the national or federal implications of the things that they do. I think the parties kind of quickly got away from that as a dispositive factor just because it's always the case that states and localities can do things that have federal implications or national implications, but it doesn't mean that they're not you know, engaging in local rule. So for example, I think one of the hypotheticals that the parties kind of threw around is, well, does the city of Detroit or the state of Michigan start becoming a federal officer when it is asserting bankruptcy just because it's relying on a federal statute and the decision to do so might have national implications? Like, I don't think anyone really thinks that. And so the mere fact that Congress has given a state or locality something to do that has national implications um, you know, isn't going to transform them into a federal officer. But then, you know, it's kind of like, well, what do you consider? And one of the things is, well, what was Congress trying to do? And one of the things they were trying to do is like give Puerto Rico the authority to take care of itself. Um, Another factor possibly out there is like, did Congress say, you know, we're invoking our territorial powers under Article 4, and therefore this is more of a local officer? Or do we consider whether they invoked Article 1, say they were intending or thinking that they were creating a federal officer? So there were a bunch of different factors that I felt like the parties were kind of bandying about. Yeah, and I think there there was some concern. It, it does seem like the what power did you invoke is relevant, but there was also some concern from the justices that, what, do you just have to say these magic words? You know, Article right. 4, and then everything's fine. Um, and then there was some question about, as you kind of alluded to, the, you know, what was Congress intending to do? Um, uh, Don Verrilli, the former SG, who was arguing for um, the the or for the petitioners basically yeah. said, "Listen, we're not. It doesn't make sense to look at individual legislators' subjective intentions. That's not how we look at legislation." Mm-hmm. Um, there was also, I thought that so Ted Olson argued on behalf of Aurelius Bank and several other entities, and he he tried to, I felt like, make this argument about how local the um, powers have to be. That to me seemed a little kind of comically. Uh, minimalistic. So he said, you know, oh, it has to be you're talking about speed limits and zoning and like these very, very kind of municipal functions. Um, Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, it can't possibly be that. Um, And so I wasn't super convinced. Yeah. Um, You know, I think that the cases are interesting, you know, partly because it seemed like the parties ultimately agreed on what the relevant legal question was. Is the board acting in a more local or federal capacity, Um, even though there might have been some disagreement about how exactly you figure out if they're acting in a local or federal capacity? Um, But one of the interesting arguments to me was kind of like the relevance of historical practice here um, and also the justices and I think the advocates concern as well about the implications of the case for other territories and for Puerto Rico as well. Um, you and for mentioned DC they talked about a lot. There was yes. a lot about DC. Exactly, because DC isn't a state. So Congress, you know, provides for the DC mayor, um, uh, you know, and other 
tools that allow D.C. a measure of self-government. And, and judges, if, right, also? D.C. judges? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So that was one of the cases that the parties were invoking, Palmore, where, you know, Congress has created a judicial system in the District of Columbia that includes, you know, D.C. courts that enforce D.C. law, but they are not um, staffed by judges who go through the Article Three confirmation process. Instead, Congress has created those courts nominally exercising its authority to regulate territories, i.e. non-states, um, and those judges don't have life tenure. They're not Article Three judges. And so what will happen to D.C. if, for example, Congress has to appoint a mayor through presidential appointment and Senate confirmation or appoint all of the D.C. judges through presidential appointment and Senate confirmation? You know, are you going to unwind all of those D.C. Oh, adjudications? I know that would really be something. And so um, Donald Verley had uh, he talked about this territorial judges uh, issue, right? Yes, exactly. Okay, so let's so. play that clip. But I actually think that let's go right to the judge's point because I think that actually proves our position and not theirs because even though territorial judges were always um, uh, nominated by the president, confirmed by the Senate, this court held starting in Cantor and then also in Engelbrecht and McAllister that they weren't judicial officers of the United States despite the fact that the president nominated them, and the Senate confirmed them. And then uh, to reinforce that, there have been three times in the country's history where uh, a question arose about whether a territorial judge could be impeached by Congress. And in each of those three instances, the political branches concluded that a territorial judge could not be impeached because the territorial judge was not a civil officer of the United States, but only an officer of the territory exercising territorial power. So what was he kind of getting at there? Because he was talking about impeachment, which seems like a slightly different issue than what but, you know, we were just chatting about. Uh, yeah. So that also kind of gets to what the possible remedies are for um, removing someone who is an officer or um, uh, an officer of the federal government or a local officer, because if they are federal officers um, and a lot of these people are going to be principal officers, then the only possible remedy to get rid of them is impeachment. Um, whereas if instead they're territorial officers, Congress can provide for things that are more democratic like elections and allow the people of D.C. to vote out officers um, uh, or renew you know, the terms of judges in um, ways that you might think are more democratic than just doing life tenure with impeachment. Yep. So the other thing that was interesting um, that didn't get as much discussion as I would have expected has to do with the insular cases. So what were the insular cases and why are they relevant? Yeah. So the insular cases are relevant because of this distinction between Article One and federal officers versus Article Four and territorial or local officers. So the insular cases are um, this kind of now infamous set of cases that held Congress has more power over the territories under Article Four and is not limited by various restrictions in the Constitution, like constitutional rights, when it is legislating for the territories. So the rationale of the insular cases is this kind of infamous, horribly racist reasoning in which the court says, you know, in the course of 
annexing um, people of different races, of course it has to be the case that Congress can legislate more restrictions on them because, you know, they're not entitled to the rights of the Constitution, which are unique to the Anglo-Saxon people. Um, And, you know, the insular cases cited Dred Scott, the decision holding that African-Americans could never be citizens of the United States. So the origins of these decisions are just this incredibly dark stain on American history that is just like a reality that they're kind of vested with racism and xenophobia. But the irony is those decisions are what allows Congress to give the territories more authority to govern themselves because the fact that Congress isn't bound by things like the Appointments Clause are what allows Congress to say Puerto Rico can be governed by a mayor who is elected by the people of Puerto Rico and removed by the people of Puerto Rico. Or, you know, it's what allows Congress to give Puerto Rico all of the legislative authority because otherwise Congress would be limited by various restrictions on giving away its legislative power, like the non-delegation doctrine. So the you know, there was all of this this long argument. It was an 80-minute argument, which is unusual. Um, there were two advocates on each side. Um, so uh, for the petitioners, there was uh, Don Verley and Jeff Wall, both of whom I thought did a really good job. And then for the respondents, there was Ted Olson. And then um, there was a, a woman who argued on behalf of, I think it was the Puerto Rican Electric Union yeah. Is that right? That's right. I think that's right. Okay. So you have, you know, this 80 minute long, long argument. There was not a lot of talk about remedy, um, and which does not bode super well for the respondents who are challenging the board. Um, you know, and that's where the de, de facto officer doctrine you, you mentioned came in. Um, mm-hmm. And so basically, as we kind of mentioned before, this is the question of, you know, if this is an unconstitutional board, do we have to wind everything down or redo everything? Um, or can we just say no harm, no foul, go through confirmation and have it be done? Um, and so do you think that might create a middle ground for the court to rule on? Uh, Jeff Wall s- seemed to suggest that it would still create a giant mess, even yes. if you go through the de facto officer doctrine. So that was how Jeff Wall kind of used the remainder of his argument time is suggesting that this de facto officer doctrine was not a way for the court to avoid chaos in the event that it found that Congress hadn't gone through the constitutionally required appointments process for the PROMESA board members. Um, But the, you know, other kind of oddity about the case is that the insular decisions, as you were suggesting, didn't really come up in the arguments that much. And in particular, they didn't come up in the arguments of the advocates who are more repeat players before the Supreme Court, like Don Verrilli or Ted Olson or Jeff Wall. Um, And I feel like the differences between those advocates' experiences at the podium and the lawyer representing the Puerto Rico Electric Utility Employees Union um, might be illustrative of something about Supreme Court culture. And so Maybe we should play an excerpt from Ted Olson's argument to give uh, the listeners uh, an idea about, you know, how Supreme Court arguments with Supreme Court repeat players sometimes go. Yes, we'll have a nice juxtaposition here for you. So here's here's Ted Olson uh, and the chief. Well, that is part of the theory. And as as the United States repeatedly said with respect to in the Freetag case, the deputy solicitor general was asked a question about what if the governor of Puerto Rico was appointed by Congress or a federal official. 
uh, and the response from the federal government was that would invoke, in every case, the appointments clause. Did that Deputy Solicitor General prevail on that position? (laughs) That Deputy Solicitor General made a beautiful argument. And, and fortunately for him, the court did not decide that precise case. But that, but that. So, argument- so why is everyone laughing? Yeah, so everyone's laughing because the deputy solicitor general who made that argument in um, uh, <laughs> was Freytag in the Freytag case. Yeah, the deputy solicitor general who made that argument in Freytag was Chief Justice Roberts and. You know, Ted Olson might know that because, like, he's also part of the Solicitor General's office and he knows this was the chief's argument. But it's this really kind of clubbiness about, you know, these same people have been arguing these same cases for the last several decades. Yeah. And I will say that, you know, in that clip, Ted Olson didn't just say, you know, in the Freytag case, the government was asked. He specifically said the the deputy deputy (laughs) Solicitor General. He knew exactly what he was doing. Yeah, yeah, so it got a nice laugh, but it was a little clubby and a little odd. Uh, In contrast, when the lawyer arguing on behalf of the unionized employees uh, of the Puerto Rico's electric utility argued, she talked uh, entirely about the insular cases um, and was basically asking the chief to please overturn them. And the chief basically kept saying, listen, why do I have to do that? The board and the Office of the Solicitor General aren't even relying on the cases. They don't seem that important. And so here is how she answered the, the chief's question. Well, uh, as, I, as I mentioned, and also, also, um, in last term, this court went ahead and overruled the Korematsu case in the Trump versus Hawaii case. The court said that the case had nothing to do with the Trump versus Hawaii case, but still, it was a morally repugnant doctrine that was purely on the basis, considering the basis of race, and therefore it was overruled. The same here with the insular cases, and I can't not stress enough that the parties have relied on the insular cases in this, in this case. That is why it's the, per- the, the perfect opportunity to address them. So what did you think of this, Leah? I just loved it. I thought it was to die for. I mean, this is usually something that you would think only someone who is a repeat player would kind of do in pointing out another instance in which the Supreme Court had nominally defied established practice of only overruling decisions where explicitly necessary to do so. And here she's pointing out, oh, actually, you've done that before. And second, like a little moment of real talk about why the insular cases need to go. Yes. Um, I thought it was just a lovely dig. Uh, but you do remember, though, that that the in Trump versus Hawaii, Korematsu was only overturned in the, the court of public opinion. Oh, that, right. Exactly. So um, um, I'll also note that Korematsu, I, I looked this up recently, and Korematsu had been cited in an opinion by Justice Thomas within the last five to six years. So it's not like it was really an old relic, but what do I know? Yeah. Um, Okay, so the last thing on court culture that I wanted to mention was there was this super weird exchange between Justice Alito and Ted Olson. Uh, So Ted Olson is, you know, basically representing some of the creditors, I think, the companies Mm -hmm. um, who are challenging the board. And so Justice Alito asked Ted Olson, you know, are you and your client just here because you care about the integrity of of the Constitution? Or would one be excessively cynical to think that something else is going on here involving money? And Ted Olson basically explained, you know, my clients are going through bankruptcy. Of course, there's a lot of money at stake. I'm not, you know, he's not just an amicus that's, you know, it was. And then Justice Alito kept pressing. And so I want to play this clip to what he said next. 
I'd just like to know what — this is a real case. I'd like to know what's really going on here. Well, there's, there's over $100 billion of indebtedness being adjudicated in various procedures, a lot of which — Right. And your client wants more of it, and somebody else, you think, is getting too much. So what is it exactly, if you want to answer? If we not can't, — We can't possibly answer that. There are these extraordinarily large claims which the governor — which the um, — Agencies of Puerto Rico have defaulted on, have not been able to pay these claims. So, yes, you're right. Of course it involves a lot of money. I have no idea what Justice Alito was getting at here, and I don't know if you do, Leah. It's super weird because, you know, the thing is, is parties can't come into court challenging federal laws merely because they think they're unconstitutional. Like, that's not a legally cognizable injury. We say they haven't been injured if you merely want to enforce the Constitution. You know, you— Ted Olson is not cheap. You know, right. he, I, he I, I mean, five years ago, I think there were articles saying that he was billing out at $1,800 per hour. Right. So uh, it's just, and I just don't understand, or why Justice Alito would have cared. It was just very odd. So, yeah, that, odd court culture issues. I agree. Um, definitely. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Shop the Sherwin-Williams 4-Day Super Sale and get 40% off paints and stains from June 7th through the 10th. With prices starting at $29.39, it's the perfect time to transform your space with color. Whether you're looking to revamp your bedroom, living room, or home office, we have you covered with bold hues, soothing neutrals, and everything in between. Shop the sale online or visit your neighborhood Sherwin-Williams store. Click the banner to learn more. Retail sales only. Some exclusions apply. See store for details. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. What makes eHarmony so special? You. No, really. The profiles and conversations are different on eHarmony, and that's what makes it great. eHarmony's compatibility quiz brings out everyone's personality on their profile and highlights similarities on your discovery page. So it's even easier to start a conversation that actually goes somewhere. So what are you waiting for? Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. All right, so should we move on to the next case, or was there anything else you wanted to share about? Yes, only because the next case is the best case ever. (laughs) (laughs) Until we get to Arissa next month, you mean? I was just about to say, I feel like this episode and the summer episode we did on Armed Career Criminal Act is really just me building up goodwill and you (laughs) waiting to hold this over my head when you demand the four extra episodes on Arissa. Yes, that's right. Okay, so what's this next case? So um, it's Mathena versus Malvo. And the question here involves 
juvenile resentencing and specifically whether a state's mechanism for sentencing and or resentencing juveniles complies with the Supreme Court's previous decisions regarding juvenile sentencing and life without parole sentences. So the, I think you you alluded to this, you know, the previous precedents, and I think we should go through them briefly because I think otherwise this won't make a ton of sense. So you've got this first case. And actually, first, let me mention the facts of this case, which are really sure. interesting. Um, it, it's a case about one of the D.C. snipers. So in, in 2002, um, two men kind of went on a rampage and were randomly shooting people in D.C. Everyone was kind of scared for their lives. People weren't going to the gas stations. Um, and so this there was a, a an adult uh, and then there was a 17-year-old um, boy who was also involved. And this involves the the then 17-year-old who um, shot and killed people. And he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Um, So you've got this case, Miller versus Alabama. Uh, So Miller held that mandatory sentences of life without parole uh, are unconstitutional. Um, And they use this kind of reasoning that said, you know, because youth is a consideration that must be considered during the sentencing phase, you have to consider whether this child is permanently incorrigible or whether they can change. Um, And then a few years later, there was a case in Montgomery versus Louisiana that held that Miller applies retroactively. And so what the petition says, if I have this right, is that Miller was only about mandatory sentences, and it doesn't apply outside of a scheme that is expressly mandatory LWAP. Judge can't even, you know, even mention or, you know, can't at all consider youth. Um, And what the petition claims is that the Fourth Circuit wrongly interpreted Montgomery, so the second case, to have expanded Miller to apply to non-mandatory life without parole cases in which the judge could have considered youth but just didn't do so. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Um, And I think it might be worth saying a word more on retroactivity because that's going to be relevant to some of the reasoning here. Um, So when you say Montgomery interpreted Miller to apply retroactively, there's this general rule in criminal procedure that new decisions of criminal procedure do not apply retroactively, i.e. they don't apply to cases that have already become final, cases where the trial and appeals and review in the Supreme Court have already finished. And the reason they don't is to protect the kind of reliance interests we were discussing earlier, where you don't want a new decision of criminal procedure to unwind too many criminal convictions or sentences. But there are two exceptions where new rules do occasionally apply retroactively. And one of them is for so-called substantive rules. And Montgomery held that Miller announced a new substantive rule, which therefore applied retroactively. And so part of parsing what Miller means is you have to come up with a reading of Miller such that the decision announced a substantive rule because that's the only way Montgomery could have applied it retroactively. Um, Because otherwise, if you just interpret Miller to be about a process or certain procedures, well, that decision wouldn't apply retroactively. Um, And so that can't make sense of Montgomery. And so that is also going to inform some of the arguments in this case. Right. And another weird thing about this case beyond the kind of procedural posture is that there seems to be uncertainty about what Virginia sentencing actually required. So it's not clear whether Virginia sentencing thing scheme was mandatory. Um, at the time that um, Malvo was sentenced, the only options were death or life without parole. Um, and juveniles that we knew, you know, can't get death. And, and there's no record of any judge ever reducing any life without parole sentence to a term of years in, in Virginia ever. 
Um, it also it seems clear that the judge didn't consider his youth. Um, and at the time, of course, he was sentenced, the judge wouldn't have known that they were supposed to. So there, it's just, it's, you know, very complicated. And it didn't seem like anyone really had a firm grasp on really the facts of, of Virginia's scheme at the time he was sentenced. Yeah, absolutely. So I think we'll probably get into that in a little bit, um, because I think the lawyer representing Malvo, Danielle Spinelli of Wilmore Hale, did a really wonderful job of incorporating those aspects of Virginia's sentencing and specifically the timing of the sentencing of Malvo um, into her explanation about why that specific sentencing procedure couldn't have complied with Miller. Um, So maybe it makes sense to kind of start out with the disputes between the parties about what Miller versus Alabama um, plus Montgomery versus Louisiana actually mean. And the dispute is, again, against the backdrop of Miller has to have announced a substantive rule, else it can't have been applied retroactively. So Justice Kagan came out right at the beginning with a pretty strong view about what Miller means. So let's play that clip. I, I mean, it, 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 I guess what you're saying is that it would take another case to make that co- clear. But I think Miller itself makes that clear. If there's anything that <clears throat> Miller says, I mean, all of Miller, it's a 30-page opinion, and it can be summarized in two words, which is that youth matters and that you have to consider youth in making these sorts of sentencing determinations. And again, of course, it talks a lot about mandatory schemes because a mandatory scheme was in front of it. But the entire reasoning was about how much youth matters and how a judge or a jury, whoever the sentencer is, has to take that youth into account. That's the lesson of Miller. So basically, the way I interpret it, Justice Kagan thinks that Montgomery is relevant because it gives a really good idea about what the court thought it was doing in Miller, you know, what Miller meant. So Montgomery demonstrates what Miller meant. Um, And I think it's really, really important to keep in mind when looking at um, what Justice Kagan said is that she wrote Miller. Um, So she probably has a pretty good idea about what Miller meant. Exactly. And Justice Kennedy wrote Montgomery, but he joined the majority in Miller. So those two together, pretty firm grasp on what the case meant. On the other hand, you know, uh, an opinion is is what it says. And one particular justice's view on what they meant personally when writing those words isn't necessarily dispositive and may not even be relevant. Yes, that's true. Um, I feel like this issue has come up previously. I think it might have been a few terms ago in Klockner versus Solis, where there was a question about what one of Justice Kagan's opinions previously meant. And she was, again, a very active participant at argument saying, no, right, this is what my opinion meant. And the court ended up kind of adopting, you know, her explanation about what the opinion meant. Um, but, you know, she's also a super clear writer. Um, and and so I think, right, like her reading of the opinion is fair, not only as the author, but also because like the opinion itself is clear, um, perhaps relative to Montgomery. <laughs> right. Um, okay. So uh, Justice Kavanaugh focused a little bit on um, you know, what kind of different sentencing regimes might sal- satisfy Miller or Montgomery? Because there's not just this binary on or off switch on uh, whether a sentence is mandatory. Right. So let's pay that, play that clip. Being restricted. Let me ask it this way. Do you think a discretionary sentencing regime is enough to satisfy the substantive Miller-Montgomery rule, as I posit it, that, that you can't impose life without parole on someone who's merely immature as opposed to incorrigible? So his question is really getting at this issue of would a state system comply with Miller or Montgomery if the state was permitted to consider 
youth rather than forbidden from considering it. Um, and then there's this kind of secondary question about what it means to consider youth if you think that Miller and Montgomery requires not just permitting the state to consider it, but requiring them to consider it. And if right, you have a state system that is being applied after Miller or Montgomery that doesn't prohibit the consideration of youth, and Miller and Montgomery seem to say you got to consider youth, is it safe to presume in every single case that judges are considering youth in arriving at their sentences? Right. And the standard that he talked about, you know, immature versus incorrigible, I think that goes to something that was said, I'm not sure if it was in Miller or Montgomery, but basically the majority opinion said, this should be rare. We think that juvenile sentences of life without parole should be rare, which suggests to me that it doesn't just, uh, you know, you know, maybe require allow you to consider it, you have to consider it. And not only do you have to consider it, but you can only impose that sentence where you conclude, where you find that this particular individual is forever, you know, uh, forever hopeless, basically. Yeah. So um, Miller had, you know, initially suggested that these juvenile life without parole sentences should be rare. And then I think Montgomery had kind of further clarified that perhaps those juveniles whose crimes reflected like the transient immaturity couldn't be sentenced to life without parole. But we also know that Miller and Montgomery did not specifically require states to make a determination, i.e. like an on-the-record determination before imposing life without parole that a juvenile is incorrigible. Um, But, you know, part of the problem with reading Miller and Montgomery to just require consideration of youth is that you have these other cases in the death penalty context, which said, you know, some decisions that just require state courts or sentencers to consider additional factors, like the fact that a defendant will be sentenced to life imprisonment, even if he doesn't get the death sentence, those don't apply retroactively because they're just kind of affecting the process of decision making. And so it's got to be that Miller requires a little bit more. um, Yeah but short of making an actual determination. So when you're arguing before the Supreme Court, it is sometimes difficult because the justices don't focus on the facts of a case. They focus on these big principles. And some of the best advocates are able to fold in the facts to bolster their analytical framework and their kind of big picture arguments. And that's something that Danielle Spinelli did a fantastic job of. And let's uh, play the clip of how she responded to um, uh, Justice Kavanaugh's kind of concern about, you know, what's required. Malvo was sentenced in 2004. That was not only before Miller, it was before Roper. Um, The prosecutor sought a death sentence for him. The issue before the jury was, should he be sentenced to death or life without parole? That was the only issue they were allowed to decide. Um, At the sentencing hearing before the judge, which is extremely short, it's eight pages at the end of the joint appendix, um, there was no consideration at all of imposing a sentence less than life without parole. I think that's kind of going to the, you know, there might be cases that are close calls. This is not one of them. Right, exactly. Like, let's assume purely discretionary systems in which states are permitted to consider youth, in which states know they have to consider youth, might satisfy Miller and Montgomery. That's certainly not this case. It was decided not only before Miller and Montgomery, but also before the court outlawed um, the death penalty for juveniles. So there isn't even this youth is different principle established in the death penalty context. Um, Virginia is arguing that, oh, well, judges can reduce sentences of life without parole to term of year sentences. There's no evidence that Virginia ever did that. The sentencing is super short. There's no evidence that youth was factoring it at all. 
parole or the possibility of something, a term of years or even life without parole. So it's just, um, I, I just thought she did a really wonderful job of that. And part of the other frustration that I see in a lot of criminal cases is, you know, criminal cases seem easier for the justices, right? Like you can, they're intuitive. There's a huge body of case law. On the other hand, they stay at this very high level of analysis um, with, and they try to stay very theoretical. There's a lot that the justices don't know about how this operates on the ground. Um, and and I think that's something that you noticed um, about what Ju- Justice Kavanaugh had said about the sentencing process. Yeah. So Justice Kavanaugh asked questions about, again, how specific variations of discretionary systems work. Um, and so he used the federal sentencing system analog to pose this hypothetical. Uh, in most sentencing regimes, as you well know, throughout the country, in the variety of sentencing courts, judges are required to consider all sorts of factors by state law. And arguments are raised to the state court judge, the trial judge, about all sorts of factors. The judge will often impose sentence without marching through a checklist of all those factors, yet it is routinely accepted that the judge has, quote, considered the factor if it has been raised or even if it's required as a matter of state law. There are lots of state cases and federal cases that say so long as the issue has been raised, we assume the judge, quote, considered it. Um, And so what he's drawing on is in the federal system, this federal statute spells out, here's a list of factors courts must consider before imposing sentence. And we don't require judges to say, here's my consideration of this factor. Here's my consideration of this factor. And therefore, I arrive at the ultimate sentence. Instead, we presume that judges do consider those factors, you know, absent some like super strong evidence to the contrary. And he's, I think, arguing by analogy that maybe that's how the post-Miller-Montgomery sentencing regime should work as well. Right. And and Justice Sotomayor echoed this as well. And I think she's the only one on the court who has actually done any sentencing um, because she was a district judge before she became a Supreme Court justice. Um, And so she talked about the Section 3553 factors. To me, though, this seems different. You know, the statutory 3553 factors that you consider in every case, that seems different than control uh, ignoring the one controlling factor that the Supreme Court says you have to take into account because you have a child in front of you. Um, and I'll also note, you know, I when I clerked for my district judge, it, it's not that hard to actually go through the factors. Right. Uh, many district judges do it all the time, um, and requiring them, them to do it uh, doesn't actually impose a giant burden. Um, so I'm a little skeptical. Though on the other hand, you have a lot of state court systems that have you know varying practices. So, um, so yeah. So it seems you know you've, you've, these kind of assumptions about the way things operate that might not always be true. Yeah. And, Another place I, I noticed uh, in a similar context, um, kind of the justice is not really knowing how things work in real life necessarily, it's, it's about Miller. So Miller was premised in part, it, it applied only to life without parole. And part of the reason for that was there was this assumption, and it's gone back you know, decades, that parole is an adequate Eighth Amendment safeguard for mandatory life sentencing schemes. And I think the justice have, have kind of felt, you know, it's fine. Parole works pretty well. Um, if you don't get into too much trouble, you'll get out of prison in 15 years. Uh, and that might have been true a couple de- decades ago, but now parole is a complete mess. Sharon Dolovich has written um, on this, uh, but basically as of you know the early part of the 21st century, parole c- 
pretty much stop being a meaningful process for people to be released. In many states, it's really an arm of the prosecutor's office. Um, there's a lot of former prosecutors on it, not a lot of child psychologists. Uh, and just as one example, Maryland, even as of a couple of years ago, and I think it's still the case, uh, Maryland had not let a chi- uh, someone who had been convicted as a child out on parole for more than two decades, even though supposedly they have this parole system. And so that, you know, the disconnect between the justices' assumptions about the criminal justice system and how it actually operates in practice is really frustrating. Yeah. And that's also, you know, definitely true in the kind of post-Montgomery litigation as well, um, where a lot of states ostensibly remedied this by saying, oh, yeah, we make all the individual sentences juveniles eligible for parole. But then states like Louisiana just aren't granting anyone parole. Um, So even Henry Montgomery, right, who's the named um, petitioner in Montgomery versus Louisiana, has gone before the parole board several times, and he is still in prison. And sometimes when those parole boards uh, deny parole, they say things like, well, your crime was just so bad, which is going to be the case, you know, anytime someone has gotten a life sentence. Um, And I'm not saying that people should always be let out on parole, uh, but it has to be a meaningful process. And, And Uh, Basing an entire doctrine on an assumption that this is a well-functioning system is problematic. Yeah, exactly. And particularly where you mentioned their determination seem to focus on the severity of the crime and then don't mention anything about youth. Um, right? That yeah. might arguably raise the inference that they are not focusing on the factor that the Supreme Court has directed them to. Yeah. So how are you thinking this is going to come out? I know we don't always do predictions, but I'm curious about your thoughts on this because it's hard. Um, so it's hard. And then there's a meta level of difficulty for me, which is this case makes me wonder whether we are in the good place or the bad place, not only with respect to whether states are going to be um, required to come up with sentencing systems that meaningfully ensure consideration of youth, um, but also because it forces me to live in a world in which I am existing and considering the votes of Justice Kavanaugh and the Chief Justice as the you know swing voters in these criminal cases. Um, it's interesting because, you know, we've talked a lot about how Justice Gorsuch has these more libertarian instincts compared to Justice Kavanaugh, um, and that led him to vote for criminal defendants, oftentimes with the progressive justices last term, whereas Justice Kavanaugh sided with his more conservative colleagues in favor of the state or the federal government. Um, that doesn't appear to be the case here. Instead, if the um, uh, criminal defendant prevails, it will be because there's a fifth or sixth vote from Justice Kavanaugh or the chief, at least based on how the argument went. And presumably, like, that's because the competing consideration here is not some general notion of libertarianism, but instead is stare decisis. And specifically, like, are you going to read Miller and Montgomery for what they said, right? And against this backdrop of it has to have announced a substantive rule, and perhaps those institutional interests here are more important to the Chief Justice and Justice Kavanaugh than for Justice Gorsuch. So what two kind of points on that is, um, so Miller... Uh, do you know one of the justices who was in the dissent in Miller? I do, because I happen to have clerked that term. Uh, it was the chief justice who authored the dissent. <laughs> he off- authored the primary dissenting opinion. So that's something to consider. I also consider the fact that the chief and Justice Kagan, by all accounts, have an excellent relationship. Um, he gives her a lot of big opinion. He assigns a lot of big opinions to her. Um, he seems to have an enormous amount of respect for her. Uh, so I do wonder if, if, and he also, you know, respects stare decisis ish. Ish. Um, Except for when so it's wonder, suckers or schmucks. <laughs> yes. But, you know. But more. He, he right? doesn't come out in every oral argument saying, yeah, 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 I know that there's a controlling opinion, but what if we were starting from scratch? Right. As, exactly. as I think Justice of course it does. So I think, you know, considering those two factors, I do wonder if this might be a case where we get the chief. On the other hand, have we ever seen the chief join the more liberal wing in a criminal case ever? 
Uh, yeah. So um, Graham, another juvenile sentencing case. So there he was the sixth vote um, where, you know, Justice Kennedy joined the more progressive justices to say, like, I say juvenile life without parole is never permissible in any context um, uh, where the juvenile isn't convicted of homicide. And the chief justice issued this super fascinating separate writing in which he said, I would invalidate this sentence on narrow proportionality grounds, which the Supreme Court never does. Like they never say a particular sentence is disproportionate to the offense and the offender. Um, and then also he joined with the um, uh, progressive justices in Carpenter to say oh, that yes. the search, you know, there violated the Fourth Amendment, okay. you know, against these pretty angry dissents from Justice Alito and Justice Kennedy. Yeah, he does do that. And I, I I'm not sure why he doesn't get as much credit for having those like libertarian instincts as perhaps yeah. someone who's maybe a little bit more ostentatious about it, like Justice Gorsuch does. Um, yeah. But, you know, he he also seems to have some of those intuitions as well, where like he's also pretty skeptical of like excessive prosecutorial power and like criminal laws overreach. Yeah, I will say that this um, this opinion is one where I feel like Justice Kennedy's retirement is going to be felt enormously. He, you know, Justice Kennedy, aside from some of the kind of marriage equality issues, he almost single-handedly spearheaded this kind of effort to be more protective of the rights of juvenile criminal defendants, starting with the Roper versus Simmons case, which held that um, juveniles couldn't be um, uh, given the death penalty, then on to Graham, which said they can't um, be given life sentences for non-homicide offenses, and then to Miller, and then to Montgomery. He authored almost all of those. Um, and so if this does not go the way of um, the respondent, um, it will, I feel like, be hugely because of his retirement. Yeah, I think that that's right. Um, and then I also just wanted to note earlier, as I was suggesting, like this case makes me wonder whether we're in the good place or bad place. It's yeah. partially because I feel like it is exemplifying something to me that embodies the patriarchy. Namely, we are sitting here in this world in which Justice Kavanaugh has been appointed to the Supreme Court, and we are parsing what he said at oral argument, right, and his nominal respect for precedent compared to his colleagues and asking, like, what we think he is about to do and whatnot. And, you know, we mentioned this at the very beginning of the term preview when we were noting the recent books that have come out kind of um, documenting uh, additional material related to his confirmation hearing and the allegations of sexual misconduct against him. And like, I, again, I don't know how to exist in this world in which he is on the court. He is deciding these important issues. And it is important to think about how he is voting and the considerations motivating him without also acknowledging these very serious allegations against him and that that is going to inform, right, like, of some number of people's experience with the court and understandings of him. So it's just, again, like, I, I just find myself very torn in these discussions. Yeah, and I, I will say, you know, um, during the last discussion, I didn't participate in it in part because of what you talk about, which is, you know, th that time, the confirmation hearings, that was a really dark month. And that was really difficult for me to just kind of live through then. Um, and I think, that any time we talk about stare decisis and what Justice Kavanaugh thinks about it, then I remember the confirmation hearings where he talked about precedent on precedent. Um, and then I think about the rest of the confirmation hearings. And then I just think to myself, I can't emotionally live through that again. I just yeah. can't do it. And I can't. So, yeah, I think it is difficult. Um, and yet we will keep um, chugging along and yes. working hard and doing it. So yes. speaking of the patriarchy, Jamie, maybe it's time to discuss the cert grants. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So there were no cert grants except for one um, uh, immigration one. And that's all we have to talk about. And that's it. Right. Right. That's the world that we want to live in. Unfortunately, uh, that's not the world we do live in. 
Okay, and we keep talking about this when Melissa's not here, and she's going to get very upset. Well, she can certainly discuss it whenever and whenever um, she would like, and hopefully on the show sometime soon. Okay, so we should stop beating around the bush. What was granted and what does it mean? It's June Medical Services, the case concerning the Louisiana admitting privileges requirement on abortion providers. Um, That is the same law Texas enacted and that the Supreme Court struck down three terms ago. So the Supreme Court granted cert um, in the clinic's petition to decide whether the Fifth Circuit was correct to uphold the law that, again, the Supreme Court had validated a few years ago. Um, But even more troublingly, the Supreme Court granted the state's cross petition and a cross petition petition is essentially a request where the party who prevailed below says, if you grant the opposing side's petition, also grant my petition for an alternative ground to possibly rule for me. And here, the state is offering up as an alternative ground the possibility that the Supreme Court should say that abortion providers clinics and doctors cannot sue to challenge regulations that they themselves are subject to by asserting that the rules interfere with women's ability to decide to end a pregnancy. So they're asking the Supreme Court to revisit an element of federal court's law of third-party standing um, in the context of abortion providers. And just to be clear, that issue has the potential to be far more um, significant in a practical sense than the actual law that is that we're talking about whether it's valid or not. Yeah. Right? Because it is, let's just say, it is probably difficult to get a pregnant woman to actually be a plaintiff in one of these cases. Right, exactly. So if abortion providers, that is clinics and doctors, can't be the plaintiffs challenging them, then ostensibly you need to have a woman who is pregnant and would like to um, obtain an abortion but is restricted from doing so. You can imagine a bunch of different reasons about why that's hard to find those individuals, women as plaintiffs. Some don't want to be plaintiffs in these major lawsuits um, because they risk um, uh, having their identities revealed um, and the entire notion of of this being a constitutional right is that women should be able to decide for themselves without having other people kind of influence and um, affect their decisions um, uh, too. Yeah, much. and just kind of on a on a practical level, if there if there is a woman who has been implicated by this law, it means that she has not been able to get an abortion right. that she wanted, which means she then has a baby. Um, maybe she gives the baby up for adoption. Maybe she doesn't. But if she doesn't, and you know she she you know she now has a child and she's raising the child and doing her best and. Maybe you don't want to then file a lawsuit or keep a lawsuit going talking right. about how you didn't want the child that you're caring for. And um, it's just incredibly complicated, uh, even outside of the uh, question of whether, you know, mootness applies or, you know, I think that it's pretty clear that um, th- there wouldn't be mootness that would apply in this yeah. context. But even aside from all of those right. procedural hiccups, it's just really, really difficult. Yeah. So you're saying states aren't litigating these cases in the best interests of women, Jamie? That could not be possible. Everyone does uh, their level best to um, do what is, you know, act in good faith. Everyone does the right thing. Big if true. Um, so the other criminalization case I did want to just mention is United States versus Sinang Smith. And the issue in that case is a follow on to basically my favorite trilogy of cases ever, um, whether a specific federal uh, criminal prohibition um, against encouraging or inducing unlawful immigration um, is unconstitutional on its face. Um, so it will be interesting to see whether the Supreme Court continues its recent trend in finding you know, a series of federal criminal prohibitions unconstitutional. 
is that this one seems different than a lot of the immigration cases we see, which usually focus on the immigrant who has moved here. Um, and I do wonder if this one might be different because it's, it's talking about folks who have encouraged uh, someone to move here illegally for commercial advantage or yep. private financial gain. Yeah. So here the arguments are probably going to sound more in like economic liberty in addition yep. to the uh, vagueness grounds, which we've seen um, thus far. And that, you know, that type of law could implicate, you know, giant, um, you know, far, uh, people who own giant farms, or it could uh, implicate someone who has a childcare worker come, you know, from another country from you know, that wouldn't otherwise be able to get status here. Right. So it seems uh, broadly potentially significant. So that's about all we have time for this episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, thanks to our producer, Melody Rowell, who is off honeymooning, now having been happily married. Congratulations, Melody. Congrats, Melody. Yay. Thank you to Eddie Cooper for putting together our music. And, you know, I feel like we should leave our listeners with a big thought just to chew on until the next episode. What do you Let's think? do it. Okay. So we are going to leave you with this thought slash question from the justice who loves to ask those thought slash questions, Justice Breyer. I mean, it wasn't phrased as that. I, I mean, it's quite deep, this question. It's like ethics of Aristotle. The wind blew my hand. You don't hold them. I'll save my depth for later. I'm not sure I want to. (laughs) For years, I just dreaded going to the dentist. But at Advanced Dentistry, I don't have to. First and foremost, they want you to feel comfortable when you walk in. Like, you'll feel it. Whereas in the past, I might have gone into the dentist and thinking, I might feel some pain at some point, but with IV sedation, it can be something that you don't dread. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, you're not alone. Visit NoFearDentist.com to learn how IV sedation can change your life. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.